Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. I, I, I worry that's premature. <laughs> um, so I'm going to tell you something about the beauty and hidden charm of the LHC. And as Bernie said, there's some physics hidden in that title, which hopefully will become apparent as we go, go through, the, through the lecture. So what I'm going to try to do is go through a talk in the same sort of manner that one of these particle physics experiments at CERN would actually get built by understanding the physics and try to understand some of the questions you wish to answer. Then build your accelerator and experiment and understand some of the detector design and development. And then once you have that, you can then start looking at the physics results that come out at the end of it. And if there's time, I may touch on some of the upgrade research and development that's ongoing to look at the next stage of, of the physics outputs from, from the LHCB experiment. So let's start with a introduction to the standard model of particle physics. So what I showed there is the world around us is made up of some things called quarks, which there are two of in the world we live in called up and down, and each of those carry electrical charge. Then there's another couple of particles called um, leptons, one which is familiar, which is the electron, and another one called the neutrino, which is the neutral partner of that and appears in, in, in the weak force. And there's four forces that control the world we live in. The photon, which is the particle that is associated with the electromagnetic force. The gluon, which is connected with a strong nuclear force. And then two other particles called Z and W, and they're associated with the new weak nuclear force, which is to do with beta K and, and radioactivity. So with those sets of particles, I can describe everything in this room, from, from the <laughs> desk to the lights to, to everything. So the first question to pose is, we know back from the days of the long ago that um, electricity and magnetism were combined into a single force, the electromagnetic force. So the question is, are these forces just manifestations of, of the same force? Because we're not at some, in the world we live in, they manifest, look different to us, but if we went to a high enough energy scales, they may just look the same. So that's one question. So I said we can describe the world around us in just those um, first four quarks, two quarks and two leptons. It turns out there are three families of quarks. So there's a second family which has the name charm, hence part of the charm in the title and strange um, quarks, and then similar heavy sort of electrons, which are called muons, and the associated muon neutrino. And then there's a third generation, 
which has top and bottom of beauty quarks um, associated with it, along again with a heavy electron, which is called the tau. So if there wasn't three generations, within the standard model, you wouldn't generate a difference between matter and antimatter. And we wouldn't be sat in this room listening to this presentation now, because at the time of the Big Bang, where matter and antimatter fused in equal quantities, it would have all disappeared, annihilated with each other, and there would just be photons flying around the universe. So having three generations in there means matter and antimatter behave slightly differently, and that's why we're all sat here tonight. So the question is, why three generations? Why it could be more? We've already said matter and antimatter differences would need three generations to, for it to happen differently. Question is, we know how matter and antimatter behave within this picture, and we know by looking at the universe that there's far more matter left over from the Big Bang than would be predicted from the standard model of particle physics. So there's two questions there. Why the three generations? And what are the processes that make matter and antimatter behave slightly differently so that we end up in the universe we live in? That's not the end of it, though, either. There's another question. So what I've shown here describes about 4% of the universe. OK? Then there's some other thing out there called dark matter that makes up another 25% of the universe. And we know that stuff exists because observations that people like Carol make see bending of, of um, electromagnetic radiation as it comes towards Earth. And there's nothing there that we can see that is this sort of matter. It's called dark matter because we can't observe it besides this gravitational bending. But then there's something else the other 75%, which is even more unique and obscure, called dark energy. And this thing is what drives the expansion of the universe. And I'm no expert in that, and I have no idea what that is. And I'll hand you over to Carol for that one. Um, but yeah, there's questions there. There's also other reasons. Um, there may be other particles there this dark matter particle, but there's lots of things within the standard model that just doesn't fit nicely together. And theoretically, they don't come together unless you have very precise cancellations within the mathematics, and physicists don't like that. A natural way to get these cancellations to explain in the theory and to explain the universe we live in would be to introduce a new set of particles that mirror those particles called supersymmetric particles. And it turns out these are ideal candidates for, for dark matter. So that's another thing the Large Hadron Collider is looking for. So it's looking for a number of things. Can we unify those four forces? Three generations, why matter, antimatter look differently. Um, the supersymmetric partners, 
and of course associated with some of the, the forces there, the Higgs particle, which is the crowning success of the Large Hadron Collider. So if you wanted to come in here about the Higgs particle, you're in the wrong place, because I'm not going to talk about it at all, because the experiment I'm involved in was never designed to look for the, for the Higgs, but I'll tell you some of the exciting stuff that it is doing. But let me give you a bit more introduction to the standard model. So up on the top left there, is your picture of, a, of a, an atom. So you've got a nucleus and you've got your electron going around it. So if I probe further and further down into that atom, I get to the nucleus. And that nucleus is made up of, of protons and neutrons. And if I probe deeper and deeper into that, I can look at the individual neutrons and protons and I can see within those this quark, this up and down quark that I introduced at the beginning. So that's where the UD quarks come and the electron comes to describe the world we live in. So if I add these quarks together, I can make a proton by taking two U quarks and a down quark and a neutron inside the atom contains an up quark and two down quarks. So that's how I can build up the world we see around us. So, so, those of you on the ball will go, well, actually, if I bung all those protons together, which have a positive charge, and I put them into a very small distance, very close to each other, why doesn't the, the electromagnetic force just repel all those protons? Because they're both positively charged and like charges repel each other? Well, the answer to that is, is that this strong force that's carried by the gluon is, is by its nature, because physicists are not very imaginative, very strong. So that force, and it's just a leaking of that force from outside of the proton and the neutrons, means that the protons and the neutrons stick together within the nucleus. The interesting thing is that though quarks have electrical charge, they also have a different type of charge, and that charge is called colour. Hence the word quantum chromodynamics that Bernie mentioned in his introduction. And it's these, this colour charge that holds the quarks together to form hadrons, and it's also this colour force that allows the protons to stay inside the nucleus. And the force carrier particle, as I said earlier, is the gluon. So if you think of the electromagnetic force, where photons are the carrier of the electric magnetic force, a photon doesn't carry electric charge. And like gravity, as you get further away from your source, that force gets weaker and weaker as you get further away. Gluons carry the colour charge as well. And the consequence of that is, as you move further and further away from two coloured objects, the force doesn't get weaker, it gets stronger. So that means, that's the reason why you don't see free quarks, because as you try to pull them apart, they either split 
and form other types of particles that contain quarks, or they just get stretched back. So think of it as an elastic band. You're stretching that electric band, either snaps and forms two elastic bands, or it pulls each other together. Same sort of principle. Okay, so there's three color charges and arbitrarily called red, green, and blue. So if you think back to your days of optics and prisms and mixing colors together, you know if, if I had three colors of the same sort, red, green, and blue, and I overlap them, mix them together in equal amounts, I'd end up with something that's colorless, would be white. Okay, so the particles we see around us, protons and neutrons, are, are called hadrons, and they're white or colorless. And that's because the proton and neutron, as I said earlier, are made up of three types of quark. And it turns out they each have one of those colors. So they cancel each other in their color charge and are colorless. So the antiquarks associated with antimatter have an anticolor. So if you put a quark with an antiquark, you have a red and an anti-red quark. Again, they color, cancel, and you again get something that's colorless. So that's where the theory says we don't get uh, see those quarks. We don't see color because it's all bounded together with inside these colorless hadrons. So things that have a color and anticolor are called mesons, and those with three quarks in are called baryons. So protons and neutrons are baryons, and I will now introduce some subnuclear particles that are called mesons. Um, so what they look like are a mixture of different types of quarks, in this case on the middle line, made up of the famous D and U quarks, or D and anti-U quarks that we've seen make up the universe around us. They make one type of um, particle. In fact, a guy just down the road got his Nobel Prize for finding these in the, the 1950s. Cecil Powell was at Bristol and found the pionesons just after the war. Then. Looking at cosmic rays, they found something that behaved slightly strangely, which are these kaon mesons. And again, just after the war, people started looking at cosmic rays and found a plethora of different particles, and they didn't know what the underlying structure was. So just like a periodic table in chemistry, you can look at the charge and other properties. In this case, it's a quantum number to do with the strange quark. And you can arrange various particles you've found in patterns, just like a periodic table represents the number of electrons in the outer shell of an element. So once you start doing that, you can make predictions of what's happening, and you can predict particles that are going to occur, and you can structure them in, in a particular way. So... What I've drawn here on the bottom is saying these particles decay into other particles. 
So in this case, one of these kaons, which has a strange quark in, can decay into three pions, and this particular decay occurs about 5% of the time when kaons decay. And the reason I want to show you this one is you can see the kaon has one of these strange quarks, and it turns into a U quark through this exchange of this W boson which is to do with the weak force. And it's only the weak force that can do this flavor changing of, of particles. And it's this weak force that is also responsibility, responsibility for the matter-antimatter difference in the universe. And you see also our friend the gluon coming in there. So this decay has dependencies on the weak force and also on the strong force. Okay, and these sort of diagrams, cartoons, um, which make life a lot easier to understand what's happening, came out of Richard Feynman back in the 1970s. Okay. That is the introduction to particle physics, so you're now all experts, I hope. Happy to take any questions at this stage. So let me show you some pretty pictures. Okay, so the first one is, what is the LHC? Well, it is a 27-kilometer tunnel under the French-Swiss um, border um, that is centered on CERN, which is that big red blob there. And it collides, most of the time, protons to protons energies of 14 TV. So what's 14 TV? Well, if you take an electrical charge and accelerate it across one volt, you have given it energy of one electron volt. And TV means that you have one with 12 knots after it. So that's 14 with 12 knots after it volts that you've accelerated your electron or proton through. Put that in context, 14 TV is about the same energy a mosquito has when it's buzzing around. Trouble is, when you do it in a beam of particles, you've squeezed it into a really small condensed energy rather than something as big as a mosquito. So that energy is all squeezed into a tiny space and is going around this huge ring just outside Geneva. Okay, so this is one of the experiments, the LHCb experiment that sits on that ring. Um, and those of you who sat through particle physics talks before, you normally see some big cylinder thing with two bits of detector on the end and the collisions of the experiment occur somewhere in the middle. So you see there's some sort of asymmetry there because that doesn't look like a typical particle physics experiment. In fact, the collisions occur right over at this end where those two red arrows point to each other. And the reason for that is, is this experiment is designed particularly to look at matter-antimatter differences. And it looks particularly in that third generation of quarks I told you about at the beginning. In fact, the beauty quarks where matter-antimatter asymmetries are meant to be large. And when you look at the kinematics of 
colliding the two protons together to produce the sort of B, B quarks and anti-B quarks, beauty, anti-beauty quarks, it turns out they are produced very close to the direction of the colliding beams. In fact, the acceptance of this particular detector is from half a degree up to about 17 degrees. So it's very, very, very forward, very, very close to the direction of the incoming proton beams. So it looks a bit different, but the layout of the detector is identical to any other sort of particle physics detector. So around the collision area, you've got a set of particles that measure the ionization of a charged track as they pass through it. So if you think of an aeroplane flying through the sky, it will leave a, a cloud trail. So you might have not seen where the aeroplane gone, but you can see where it's gone by this trail of vaporization at the end of it. Exactly the same sort of principle, charged particle goes through your detector, in this case pieces of silicon, and leaves an ionization trail, which you can then join up the dots on your silicon detector to see where it went. So there's a, that's what this velo detector is, and this is what these T1, T2, T3 detectors are. There's also a big magnet in there, because as something with the momentum goes you, with the charged particle and you put it through a magnet, it bends. It's like a cathode ray tube or an old-fashioned... You all used to have accelerators in your front room. It was called a television set, and it worked exactly the same principle. Particle went through, you bent it, and it impinged on a screen. Um, so this is exactly the same idea. Got a magnet and you bend it. So those with lots of momentum are very straight tracks and those with less momentum curve more. So if you bend, measure the radius of curvature of the bending, you can get to the momentum of the particle. Okay, so that's what the sort of tracking system does. Then there's something called calorimeter. And basically, that is, it's just measuring the energy of the particle. It's just a big lump of material that stops the particle and it loses its energy. And you sample how it loses that energy. And there's two of them. One in, in the light blue there, which looks at things that interact electromagnetically and can't travel far through material. So it would lose all its energy in that blue bit. And then the darker blue bit are things that react more through the strong force, the nuclear forces, and they would lose all their energy in that dark blue bit. And then the heavy electrons, these muons I talked about, they don't interact with matter at all because, because of their um, larger mass. And they can pass through the whole detector. They're charged particles. So this is like a, a charged particle detector. But it's put at the end because you know if a particle gets this far, it's almost certain it's one of these heavy electrons, one of these muons. Okay. I didn't talk about these two detectors that are labeled in the middle there, rich, and there's another one over here called rich. And these make use of the Shrenkov light that Bernie mentioned of earlier. And you can use those detectors to say whether a particle is one of these pions I mentioned earlier or it's a kaon. And this is particularly important when you're looking at these matter-antimatter asymmetries. So I'm going to tell you something about my connection 
with the, the rich detectors in the next few slides are. Except I will show you what it looks like in reality. So that's a picture taken before they shut up the experiment. So I'm afraid you have to flip that diagram I showed you earlier. So the Velo detector is now over this side. In fact, you can't see it because you can just see the lights in the middle. There's a sort of gray, bluey bit, which is the lights coming from, from the tunnel. So the Velo and the Rich One detector are in that hole somewhere. Then this orangey thing is the magnet. Then there's the trackers. Then there's this larger Rich, and then those calorimeters and the muon detectors. So the particle collisions occur in that hole somewhere, and the spray of particles that come out from those particle collisions go that way. I should also tell you where LHCB is. So this is a, another pretty picture of Geneva and Mont Blanc in the background. Um, LHCB is where that red arrow points. So that strip of land you can see just above it is Geneva Airport. And I put the red arrow there not to embarrass the vice chancellor because Jet de Haut is behind there. I didn't want it to spoil the, the fountain in the lake. <laughs> but if you sit in the pods, pods on Geneva Airport, you can look out towards the Jura Mountain, which are over here somewhere. And if you look carefully next time you're out there or on a skiing trip or anything, you see a building with two big round windows. That's the LHCB experimental hall. Okay, so let me tell you something about the detector design. So, it makes use of a phenomena called Schrenkhoff radiation. So what's Schrenkhoff radiation? Well, everyone's familiar, because you live in the southwest, with Concorde and the sonic boom. So you know when Concorde goes faster than the speed of sound, sends out a shock wave, which is the, the sonic boom. This is the optical equivalent of the sonic boom. So you're going to tell me nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. That's true in a vacuum. But if you have a piece of material which the light's interacting with, it slows down. And that slowing down is what you usually measure, if you think back to O-level physics, is your refractive index. All refractive index is telling you is the fraction compared to the speed of light in the vacuum as it travels through your material, whether it's water or glass or something else. So you can have a particle traveling through a, a material faster than the speed of light can travel through that material. And because that can happen, you then get this optical boom, which is Schrenkhoff radiation. And, and there's a very simple formula that tells you about that um, shock wave. It tells you the cause of the angle in the direction of travel of how that shock wave propagates. And it's related to, to the speed, which I've called beta in that equation, which is just the speed in terms of a fraction of the speed of light, and n, which is the refractive index of the material. Okay, so, as I've told you earlier, I can use my tracking detector and my magnet to measure the momentum of a particle. So if I measure this angle, 
and I know the momentum, which is P in this equation down here, I've got everything is known except for M, which is the mass of the particle. So by measuring that angle of the Shrenkov light, knowing the momentum from my other detectors, I can get to the mass and I can therefore get to what type of particle it is because these particles have different masses. So nice and simple. This is what it looks like. This is an engineering sketch. So we have particles coming in from the interaction, passing through a gas, which originally was fluorocarbon, um, no longer fluorocarbon for environmental reasons, but it passes through there, creates a, a cone of light as it travels through there at this Shrenkov angle, and then you put a mirror in the way and focus that light onto a set of detectors that can detect that light. And if you use a spherical mirror, or strictly speaking, it should be an elliptical mirror, it means that disk of light that lands on the mirror, when you focus it to the focal plane of that mirror, turns into a ring of light. So then you can measure the radius of that ring of light on your photo detectors, and that's, of course, related to the angle of the light that's come, come off. So basically, you get rings on there, measure the radius, know the momentum, and Bob's your uncle, you know what type of particle it is. Okay, so I was involved in some of the optical design of this experiment. So we looked at two designs, one, beryllium. So anyone who knows anything about beryllium knows it's probably one of the most poisonous materials on the planet. Um, there's only probably a number of companies that actually machine or deal with beryllium, one in the US and a little outfit just outside Moscow that um, we used. <laughs> its other use um, is, um, is a, in the military. Shells are often made of beryllium. Okay, so there's beryllium and then what we ended up using, and I'll tell you why we ended up using, is um, using carbon fiber. So CMA, which is a company in Tucson, Arizona, um, and makes mirrors for NASA, um, made these mirrors for us, which was event eventually installed. So let me tell you a tale about the beryllium mirrors. So that's the same picture before. So what you can just about see from there, there's not, the mirror hasn't been silvered, so there's a glass layer just floated on top, very thin glass layer floated on top of that beryllium. And it's matched specially so when temperature changes, you don't crack the glass because the thermal expansion coefficients are different. So there's a clever technique that's done to, to produce these mirrors. And the beryllium, um, we got cheap, or was hoping to get cheap, um, because there was a, because of its military use, um, the EU had a scheme of turning um, the swords into plowshares. So we, we, we signed, we're all through the paperwork for this, with this company in Kazakhstan. And then a big order came in from China for non-plowshare 
<laughs> opportunities. And um, suddenly the price went up. And at that stage, we said, um, no, thank you. So we moved to the, the brilliant mirrors. I'll skip that. Actually, I will tell you about this. This is when I had problems with my postdoc. This is the little outfit on the outskirts of um, Moscow. Um, and I just told you that brillium is one of the most poisonous substances known to man. And whatever you want to do, you don't want to breathe in the dust. Um, I hope that's aluminium on there. But um, when a colleague of CERN came back, having visited this place, and showed these photos in a meeting, my postdoc, who was going to make a site visit, said, no, I'm not going. Uh, and so <laughs> we had to make other arrangements. What, what really appeals to me about this photo is how they've tried to make it nice and homely with the curtains in the, in the workshop. It's, it's really nice. But it, was, uh, it caused no end of pain for me at the time. Um, these are the carbon fiber mirrors, as I showed earlier. And how do you make a carbon fiber mirror? Well, what you do is you make a, a mold, you make a glass mandible, you get your glass to the radius curvature you want, very smooth, you put epoxy layer over it, and you start layering up your carbon fiber. Then you carefully arrange a load of hoops on it, put a back on it, and lo and behold, you have your mirror in principle. There was problems because these guys only could coat those mirrors for infrared light, and they couldn't do it for us. Well, they had all sorts of problems doing it for us because we're doing Schrenkopf light, which is ultraviolet light. So in the end, we ended up in France with some company doing it for us. And lo and behold, it got installed. So that black thing you can see going through the middle is the beam pipe that contains the proton beams. Those big silver things that were designed in Bristol are the mounts for the plane mirrors. You can just make the edge of the mirrors on it. And you can see here, and the equivalent at the top is some quartz plates that protect the photodetectors from the radiator gas inside the volume. Um, that, that beam pipe was also done by the cowboys in Bosco, and it's beryllium. So we did end up using them, but not for, for our mirrors. Okay, so that's my detector designed. Let me do a bit of physics now. And the physics I'm going to talk about is hidden charm physics, hence the hidden charm in the title. Okay, so I introduced the pi meson and the k meson previously. Pi meson is this U D bar quark, and this k meson is the U S bar quark. I can also have mesons made up of charm, an anti-charm quark inside the same particle. Okay, and there stuck together with this glue on, just like the others are. And because there's a quark, charm quark, and an anti-charm quark, we now observe that particle, it's charmless, because the quantum properties of the charm and anti-charm quark cancel each other. So hence the name hidden charm, because it doesn't have 
just one quark of one type, the two quarks cancel each other. These are normally called charmonium, and you can have the beauty quarks that form similar sort of things. So that's what the hidden charm means. It's a particle that has a charm quark and a hidden charm antiquark in the same particle. So, what's the history of this stuff? Well, it was discovered in 1974, and a couple of years later, these two characters, Bert Richter and Sam Ting, got the Nobel Prize for the discovery. Um, Forty-odd years later, we still don't really understand how you produce, how the theory behind producing these in, in the collider works. Charmonium, in many ways, has the same... It looks like a photon, looks like light. It has the same quantum numbers of, of light. Um, and so like light, it can be polarized, just like you put your sunglasses on to cut out different types of polarization. Charmonium particles also can be polarized and be able to understand the kinematics of producing them and the polarization of them. The theory can't do both. So people cast their mind back to understand the shell model, the structure and energy levels of a hydrogen atom. This is what, just what these yellow blocks are. And the nomenclature that you see there, these S and Ds are just describing the angular momentum of the different types of particles. So for a chemist, this will all look very, very similar. The nomenclature is exactly the same. So these are the predictions and the observations of what these charmonium, these quarks should look like. You also see in red and purple some other things that weren't predicted and don't fit into the model. So what on earth are those other particles? And that's what I'm going to talk about. These are these exotic states. So why is a J-side one of these charmonium particles? useful in the detector. The nice thing about them is that 6% of the time, they decay to just two particles, one of these muons, these heavy electrons, and its antiparticle. And as I said, these are dead easy to see in your detector because they travel straight through the detector. And I can calculate the mass of that J side just by basically E equals MC squared, which I've rewritten in terms of energy and the momentum, so if I measure the energy and the momentum of those two muons, I can work out the mass of the particle that produced them. Okay, so that's what I would look for in my detector. And here's a picture of one of those JSIs in my detector. So here is the magnet I talked about earlier. Here, down at this end, is the VELO, the tracking detector. Those maroon and orange spots is the rich detector. Then you can see these green things are the other parts of the tracking detector. And you can see two particles that go all the way through the detector, create hits in these outer chambers, so it must be muons, and you can then track them back. Look how they curve through the, the magnet and therefore calculate what their momentum is. And it turns out the masses of those things correspond to this JSI meson. 
And here, just to show how easily and beautifully clean we can measure these particles, here is a mass distribution of measuring those two muons and creating the mass of the JSI. And you can see there's extremely little background coming in, 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 in outside of the where the mass should be. So you've got very beautiful clean signals for these JSIs. And here's another type of charmonium meson decaying in the same way. Those are a bit trickier to reconstruct and you can see larger levels of background events, but again, still pretty clean. So I said these particles I showed in sort of orange and purple didn't fit into the picture. Um, so what are they? Well, it's thought they may be particles with more, more than three quarks. So I introduce the world we live in is made up of two particles with two quarks or three quarks, but way back in the 1960s when the sort of quark model particle physics was being developed by people like Gelman and Zweig, there's a lovely quote in their paper that says, well, they could be states with four quarks or even more. And up to 2003, none of these were ever, ever seen. Um, so what could these be? Well, for, from a chemical point of view, it could just be a molecule, right? So you've got two, two of these mesons, each one having a charm quark, and they may just coalesce together like an two atoms coming together in a molecule, such as water. Or they could be two quarks that are not white, so not a meson, so they still have color. So they stick together because they've got color charge and attract each other. Or it could be a charm, an anti-charm quark, which don't have this color and anti-color that cancel each other, but they can cancel each other through the gluon which is sticking them together because I told you the gluon also carries the color charge. So if you have the right sort of gluon, it could also cancel the color charge. Or another model is you've got a JSI, one of these charmoniums in the middle, and you've got some cloud of particles surrounding it. So there's a number of models what these exotics mesons could, could be. Okay. There's now about 30 of these exotic particles. None of them fitted into the model that was expected, and LHCB is finding these all the time. The theoretical picture cannot describe it. And the funny thing is, they're only associated with heavy quarks. That's by what I mean is either charm or beauty quarks. These light quarks, none of these exotic particles have been seen with the light quarks, just these heavy ones. So there's something strange going on there. Okay, so I showed you that horrible picture of all the energy levels. Isn't this just stamp collecting, to quote a former executive at STFC? Um, so the question is, right, when we had a plethora of atoms, we got order out that plethora of atoms by looking at the underlying structure and creating the periodic table. When the quark picture first came on, on the scene, 
We had all these subnuclear particles that were finding cosmic rays. We didn't know where they were all coming from. Then that funny hexagonal picture I showed you at the beginning, where we started looking at trying to structure those, understanding the quantum properties of these particles. And we were able to get some structure out and also made to get some predictions out of particles that hadn't been seen. So it's the plethora of these, and this is a controversial statement, is the plethora of these exotic states just questioning the underlying quark structure. Do we really understand what's going on? Is it just telling you something, there's some structure going on there that just doesn't fit into how we think the standard model works? Of course, there's a more mundane answer is that our theory of dealing with molecules of these mesons is just way off. And I'll put my money on that last statement, but this one's more exciting. And I'm not alone in thinking that. If you look at the archive where all particle physics papers appear before they end up in a peer-reviewed journal, there's been about greater than 100 papers on this subject since, since 2015. Let me skip this because I'm running out of time. Let's just... Let's just look at this one. So this is one of these new particles that decays into a, a psi and a pi, and, and it comes from one of the B mesons that have been produced. So I can look at the invariant mass. This equals mc squared, or m squared equals e squared minus p squared that I showed earlier, and I can find these B particles. A nice clean signal again, looking at these decays. Now this plot is a clever way to look at substructure in these decays and I, I'm looking for sort of lines, bands that appear in this plot. So what's plotted on this axis is just the mass of the pair of the pyron kaon and you see two structures here which correspond to some excited state of the kaon and with the help of this dotted white line you can see some sort of band appearing across here, which corresponds to this Z particle. So you can do some complicated fits, just to show you that it's not all easy with using e equals mc squared. So you're trying to understand the models, put them all into a big pot, turn the handle on your fitting machine, and you come out with an answer. So best one to look at is that top left one, is without this Z particle in, we cannot describe the mass spectra. You put that Z particle in, and you can see you describe the black dots, which are the, the data. And you can put in different models for that Z, and you can extract some of the properties of that Z, which we have done and confirmed what they are. It confirms they're not some sort of charmonium. There's some prerequisite of knowing some model to put into that. So that's a problem. But you can do it. This is another possible way. This is completely independent. So you take all the possible case states you can, case star states you can think of, just bung them in to uh, uh, your fit um, and see if the strange bump you get in is just not 
can be just argued away because of angular momentum conservation. And you can see doing this approach, which is completely model independent, you can't describe that bump. So there's definitely something there that um, doesn't describe the data. So you have to then go back to your model dependent way to extract some information. Okay, so why sop up four quarks? Why not have five quarks? Uh, again, there's a couple of models how to do this. One is one of something that looks like a, a baryon or proton with a charm quark in, with a meson with a charm quark in, or it's five quarks all bound inside a thing. Um, and you can do the same sort of tricks that I showed before. This is just showing you how it could be formed from a decay of a, a particle that's produced into these sort of particles. So that particle, that diagram on the right looks very much like the particle I showed you right at the beginning showing that K on decay. It's exactly the same sort of decay, B quark being changed into a charm quark by the, the weak force. And they can coalesce into these five particle states, five quark states. And again, the fit to the data needs that you need these five quark states. And it's not as clear cut as the other one. If you look very closely between those two red lines, you can see a density that's not expected across that plot. Okay, so I've run out of time. Um, so status and next steps. So LHC was B was designed to look at matter and antimatter differences. I haven't shown any results, but I can tell you all still consistent with the standard model. We can't, still can't describe universe we live in. We can look at rare decays of particles. And the beauty of looking at that is because of quantum, um, quantum effects in looking at decay rates of particles. We can probe the decays and also look for changes to those rare decays that will help us find supersymmetry, this candidate for dark matter. But again, all consistent with the dark standard model, though there is some glimpses that there may be something there. Um, exotic particle production, I just talked about. And in order to push these further to the limit, you have to grade the accelerator, upgrade the detector to collate with that. So the collision rate has already been significantly increased above the design for LHCb, and to go even further, you need to redesign the experiment in order to do with the increased particle fluxes that will pass through it, and there's a couple of papers that are already looking at that. So I'll stop there.